Well, every single week when I approach the, the task of preaching God's Word, I'm well aware of my inadequacy for this sacred task. Um, but there are certain weeks when that awareness is heightened. And this is one of those weeks. Um, when we started uh, several months ago in this in- incredible letter of First Peter, and that's what we're doing, we've been working our way through this letter, uh, kind of paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse, for several months now. And I, but I knew this passage was coming, and, and when I knew that it would be a somewhat challenging task to preach it when we got to this point, and let me just tell you, it has not disappointed. Um, this is God's wonderful, inspired, true, profitable, beautiful Word. I firmly believe that, and I hope that you do too today. Um, but let me just give you a little sampling of some things that some brilliant Bible scholars, the guys that I'm reading their commentaries and have been using and profiting from throughout our study of 1 Peter, let me just share a few of the things that they say about this section. One says, this is the most troublesome section in Peter's entire first letter. In fact, it is one of the thorniest in the whole New Testament. Another, this paragraph is notoriously obscure and difficult to interpret. Another, this section contains some of the most difficult exegetical problems in the New Testament. Another, we now come to a section in Scripture widely recognized as perhaps the most difficult to understand in all the New Testament. And one more, for good measure. We are here face to face with one of the most difficult passages, not only in Peter's letter, but in the whole New Testament. These are not particularly encouraging words for this pastor of very average intelligence and ability to hear. Um, And so, uh, but surely one of the most remarkable minds that God has given to the church in all of church history, he can help us out. Martin Luther, the great, the brilliant reformer, Protestant reformer in the 16th century, uh, he, he wrote about this passage as he reflect on it, and he said this, A wonderful text is this, and I concur, and yeah, I also concur with this, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> I cannot understand it, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. <laughs> okay. Well, given Luther's perspective on this text, there doesn't seem to be much hope for me today in this message. And maybe you're thinking that doesn't give you much hope for the sermon either. Um, but at least, even if you're having a rough morning this, uh, today, you can, aren't you glad you're not me this morning? Uh, I hope we can all take confidence in that. Alright, so with fear and trembling, here's how we're going to proceed in our attempt to understand, explain, and apply a passage that, according to Dr. Luther, no one has been able to explain. Um, Let me just give you a few introductory statements before we get right into the text. First one is this. Don't try to write all these down, just if you want to listen. You can summarize them, but they're kind of wordy. If Martin Luther, a man well-known for his dogmatism, he was not afraid to take a stand, if he was cautious in his interpretation of the difficult parts of this text, then we would probably be wise to follow his example. Understand? That doesn't mean we can or will just kind of gloss over the difficult parts or that that we won't come to some conclusions here, but we must hold those conclusions humbly and charitably and be open to the possibility that we might just be wrong in how we understand this passage. So that's the first thing. Second, 
This passage was not confusing, but rather greatly encouraging and helpful to Peter's original readers. Did you get that? So Peter writes these divinely inspired words to comfort, to help, to strengthen the hearts of these, those first readers as they are going through this experience of persecution for the Gospel's sake. And so he didn't write to confuse them. He didn't write so that they could start this long email debate about the meaning of these words. Hint, hint. Uh, I'm not preaching this for that purpose. If these words were, in, and, and this is what I want you to say, if these words were intended for their comprehension and for their comfort, we should also anticipate comprehension and comfort coming from these words. Alright? So don't, don't forget that. Third, when we come to challenging interpretive matters any place in Scripture, it's important to remember this kind of general principle of interpretation that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. That's not original to me, but I, I, I want you to, to remember that. So the, as Patrick alluded to earlier, the main thrust of this passage is not fuzzy. It's not difficult to see or to understand. And so... Don't forget that. We, we, we can't miss this magnificent forest that's in front of us here and, and it's because we're distracted by the wonderful but kind of strange little trees. And so we need to see the whole and not miss what's clear and plain and the main point of the passage. And so I want us to see that. And then the last statement is that my focus in this sermon, given the limitations of time that we have and given, given the limitations of this preacher is not going to be on trying to solve all the perplexities of this passage, all the textual difficulties and theological issues and differences and all the historical debates, but instead my focus will be on the clear and compelling presentation of the suffering and exaltation of Christ. And and that is what is prominent and what is proclaimed and celebrated in this passage, and that's what I want us to to proclaim and celebrate today. There is a place and a time to to do a deep dive into all of the little thorny details of a passage like this. This is the place, but this is probably not the time. And so I don't say those things to give myself or to give us an excuse for laziness when we come to the Bible. It's not out of an unwillingness to think hard and to wrestle with the text and come to some conclusions Um, I say these things to guard against an unhealthy preoccupation with difficulties in the text that might distract us from the clear and plain meaning of the text. And so trust me, I have been deep in these issues over the past couple weeks in particular, but really several months, and so we are going to wade into some of those challenges this morning. We're not going to gloss over them, we're not going to skip them, but, but it's not going to be in a comprehensive way that's going to to give all of the pros and cons of all of the various views out here and all the variations of those various views. And there are a lot of them in this passage. And as you can probably already see from, from just reading it. So I encourage you to study this passage for yourself and with other believers and explore some of those different interpretations. And that could be time well spent. And, you, and, and feel free to interact with me if you have other questions and that, that come up. So all that said... Let's get back and let's move forward through here. What is the forest that we need to see? What is the, what is the main, the plain idea that Peter is communicating to these readers, to his first readers, and to us today? 
Well, remember the context. This is why I had Van read back from verse 13. He's writing to encourage what we call suffering sojourners. Believers who are in this world, they're small in number. This is not their home. They're citizens of heaven. This is how, they're, how Peter describes them. These elect exiles are passing through this world. They don't really belong here firmly. They live here and they have uh, a responsibility to play here, uh, to bear witness to, the, to Christ. But, but ultimately, they belong elsewhere. They belong with the Lord. And so he's writing to encourage these. They're few in number. They're a persecuted minority for the gospel's sake. And the greatest encouragement Peter can give to these people is to direct their minds to Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. He is he's directing them to Jesus, the suffering servant. And so he points to Christ, the one who suffered death alone. And yet he reigns now victoriously over all. And so in in Christ, we then have this living hope of of our suffering being transformed into victory as well because we're in Him. And so there's this wonderful movement and progression through the text. And I hope you saw that just as it was read, this sweeping presentation of the triumph and victory of Jesus Christ beginning with His death and going to His resurrection and ultimately culminating in His ascension. And it's all meant, and this is what I want you to not forget, it's all meant to strengthen the, 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 the weary and the fearful souls of His readers. To strengthen our souls this morning, brothers and sisters. This is why this is here. Here's how I've been praying for us, for my own heart, for, the, for us even this Lord's Day. Here's what I'm hoping this morning. My hope... I will not call it a win this morning in preaching if I'm able to convince you that my interpretation is right and every other interpretation is wrong. That's not my hope. I mean, I, I, again, I, I, I want to lay out support for what I understand is being said here, but that's not my goal. That's not how I'm praying. I'm not praying for a good old-fashioned argument to break out in the fellowship hall between you know, worship and Sunday school on who's, what the right interpretation. My hope is that by the grace of God, at the end of our time this morning we will all respond together in celebration of our triumphant Lord as He's revealed in this text. And, and that we'll, as, we, as we revel in the, His victory, our, our troubled hearts will be at rest in the Lord. And, and, and we will be full of confidence and hope in Jesus Christ. And so I pray, I pray that we'll have a more biblical perspective on life, not, not ignoring the difficulties that we're facing in life. They're not pretend, they're, not, they're, they're real, and, and they don't need to be just kind of pushed to the side, but, but that our eyes will be lifted above them to see what is ultimate and what is eternal, our victorious Christ. And that's what I want us to see. So we're going to see Christ's victory. We've been singing about it. We're going to see it now in this passage. Christ's victory in His sin-bearing death. We talked about this last week, but we're just going to quickly review that. Christ's victory in His salvation providing resurrection. And Christ's victory in His heaven-ascending reign. So first, again, by way of review, Christ's victory in His sin-bearing death. We covered this last week. Just quickly review verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, having been, uh, excuse me, being put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive in the Spirit. <coughs> and so to these suffering saints, he says, first thing, Christ also suffered. You are not alone in your sufferings. Jesus, the, the eternal Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the one through whom everything in the universe has been made, and in whom all things hold together. This Christ was sent by the Father, Father out of love into this world to suffer and to die. And so when you suffer as a Christian, you're not blazing some new trail. No, you are walking in the steps of your Lord. And so Christ also suffered. But while Jesus' suffering was certainly similar to ours in certain ways, we talked about this last week, it was absolutely unique in the most important ways. that His death was unrepeatable. He died once. And, and it was for atonement. He, he died for sins. It was, his death was also for sinners. The righteous for the unrighteous. It was a substitutionary death. His death was purposeful for a reconciliation to God that He might bring us to God. And His death was real. But it wasn't final. So we see that He was put to death in the flesh. He really died on the cross. None of this silly business about him you know just fainting because of the pain and the exhaustion and then in the cold damp tomb he was revived no he was put to death in the flesh his body in his body his life came to an abrupt halt and yet he says but when it when the, when the real death of his body took place Christ was made alive in the spirit i think the spirit here is not it's not the holy spirit it's it's Jesus eternal that inner person, the eternal Jesus, the one who has always been alive. And then we know three days later, his body was resurrected in this transformed and eternal state. And, and again, joined to that spirit forever. And so, but this is the point. This is why Peter's saying this for their encouragement. Jesus' death, his suffering and his death, was not a loss. It was not a loss, it was victory. As, as it was, was prophesied back in Genesis 3, yes. The, the Christ's heel would be bruised, but the serpent's head would be crushed. And Jesus did that. Christ died once for sins. When Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, it wasn't some concession of defeat, like, oh, I'm finished. No, it was a cry of victory. That's the first thing. His, his death is victory. And so, as suffering sojourners, this is again Peter's purpose, Consider Christ's suffering and His death and be encouraged and helped. Because Jesus' suffering shows us how we can, our suffering can also be according to God's will, as He says in verse 17, the first right prior to this. And because Jesus' suffering and death for us, uh, for us we know that we, we are secured and guaranteed of hope of life beyond the grave, which is a big part of what Peter's writing. And so that's what we considered last week. Now we get to the difficult and perplexing part of the passage. Second point, and I know it may take a while to develop this, but we're going to see it come to, to a point in verse 21. Christ's victory in His salvation providing resurrection. So look at verse 19 again. In which, in His Spirit, that's the Spirit that's eternal, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a <coughs> removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right. You, may, you were confused the first time, but you read it again, and you're like, boom, got it now. This is crystal clear, right? Probably not. Um, maybe, maybe try reading it in a different way. You got your little iPad. Read it in a different version. Read it with a different accent. Um, read it in the original Greek. Unfortunately, I've tried all these things, and every time it comes out the same. And so that, that, there's no help there. But, but keeping in mind the main thought, let's try and understand what, what Peter is saying and why he's saying it. And so I hope that as we read that again, there were some questions that kind of bubbled to the top of your mind, things as you read those verses. And so and our answers to, the, to those questions are, are going to be what begins to form our understanding of what Peter's saying here. So some of the questions that I think we've got to deal with. Who are these spirits? Who are these spirits? Are they angelic beings? Are they uh, like, like demons? Are they people, soul, spirit? It could be either one. The word is used at different times uh, for both of those. Second, where are they in prison? <coughs> Third, what did Jesus proclaim to them? What, what, what was his message when he went and proclaimed to these spirits? Is it, was it a warning? Was it some kind of evangelistic appeal? Was it an announcement of triumph and, and of his triumph, their defeat? Another question, when did this proclamation happen? Was it in the days of Noah? Was it between Christ's death and resurrection? Was it at some other time? And that's just verse 19. And you keep going down through verse 21, and these, what's the connection between the ark and baptism? And what, is, what does it mean when he says, or does water baptism really save us? And so there are other questions that could be raised, but this at least gives you some idea of the complexities that are in this passage that we, we need to <coughs> work through in understanding what, the, what is being said here. So there are, there are many different interpretations out there as you begin to survey what people will say about these verses, and there are many more slight variations of those kind of more prominent interpretations. I'm not going to try to cover all of the possibilities some of which are very reasonable, some of others of them are just absolute nonsense and way outside the, the realm of biblical orthodoxy. And, but let me just give you two of the more common explanations, <coughs> primarily verse 19 and 20 here, of, of what's being said. And, and, um, and you'll notice even these two more common ones, they're very different from one another. <laughs> and, and they seem quite divergent. They both fit... Uh, in general, and, and, and they, they both could support the main thrust of what Peter is saying and why he's writing this, and that's why I say they're both possible. First one is this. I'm going to state them, and then I'll come back and kind of explain them. First one is this. This, this may refer to Jesus going to the demonic spirits who are imprisoned in the depths for their disobedience back in Noah's day, and he did this after his death and before his resurrection to proclaim his victory and triumph at the cross. That's one interpretation. I know that's a mouthful, and I'll come back and say it again in a moment. Another possible interpretation is this may refer to the time when Jesus, in his spirit, went and preached to people in Noah's day who were disobedient to God, who mocked God for being righteous and for obeying God. And so he went and preached to them. And those spirits are now imprisoned 
at the time Peter's writing. Again, there are other views. You may have heard other views. You may hold other views, and that's fine, But other than the ones I've listed here. But these are the more common ones and the two that I find more uh, supported by the text and more um, um, supported by the whole of Scripture and more compelling. So let me quickly explain each view quickly. We don't do this often when we walk this view, this view, but I think we come to passages like this. There's no other way around it. So first view is this again. This may refer to Jesus going to the demonic spirits imprisoned in the depths for their disobedience during Noah's day. And he goes there after his death and before his resurrection and proclaims his victory and triumph over them. And so he he went to these imprisoned um, fallen angels in kind of this Alcatraz of the spirit world. In the depths there's this... There's this dungeon, this prison, and he and these demons are, 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 are chained there. And he goes and he announces his victory over sin, over death, over hell, over demons, over the devil. He's triumphant. And in so doing, he makes it clear to them, even though it looked like they had foiled God's redemptive purposes, as Jesus' body lay in the grave, Jesus goes in the Spirit to them and says, Uh-uh, I won. And so that's, that's one possible interpretation. And when you put this text along passages like, if you just want to jot down 2 Peter 2, 4-5, Jude 6 and 7, and then you go back and you'll, either of those passages are going to direct you back to Genesis 6, 1-4. And so this interpretation does seem to have strong support. 2 Peter 2, 4 and 5 talks about demons being chained up because of their sin in verse 4, and then immediately in verse 5, he puts it in the context, or there's this reference to the flood in Noah. And so there's, there's similarity. In Jude 6 and 7, again, it also talks about angelic beings who disobey God and are now kept in, quote, eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And so this interpretation says, as these imprisoned demons, they get wind of the fact, the apparent victory in uh, their, their apparent victory in Christ's death, that Jesus' body is laying in the tomb. Jesus goes to them in a spirit, not to evangelize them, but to announce His victory and His supremacy over them. And you can see how this could be of great encouragement to Peter's readers and to us. Apparent defeat may mean actual victory. That's one possible interpretation. A second possible interpretation, is that this refers to the time when Jesus, in the Spirit, went and preached to people in Noah's days. And when I say people, the spirits, again, has that, can have that meaning. The spirits, the souls. Preached to people in Noah's day who were disobedient to God and mocked Noah for, for obeying God and being righteous. And so, to understand this interpretation, you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1.1 and to, to understand what we're saying here. So remember the prophets, remember, and this is several months ago now, prophets, they're on their tiptoes, they're, they're longing to understand uh, and grasp the full nature of salvation, the salvation that they're, that they're actually speaking about. And so they have, they have some pieces of the puzzle, but they don't have all the pieces, and they don't have the picture on the box. And so they're, they're looking at these pieces and trying to see how things fit together. And Peter says that they were, quote, searching intently, They're trying to figure out the time and the circumstances, verse 11, that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He preached or predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so, the Spirit of Christ was 
according to this view, was in Noah, was preaching to the disobedient people of Noah's day, those spirits, again, human spirits, they weren't bound at the time, but as Peter's writing, now they're bound in prison. And so the language and the grammar of verses 18, end of 18 to 20, it does allow for this. Remember, there are no punctuation marks in the... Uh, the punctuation we see in our English Bible was added, and sometimes it can be rather interpretive. And so, this could read something like this, that the same Spirit um, that Jesus is alive in is the same Spirit in which He went and proclaimed to the people while the ark was being prepared. And then everything else in that sentence may be parenthetical. Those spirits that he's proclaiming to, they are now in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. I hope you're, I haven't lost you totally yet. And so these, these people are now in prison, as Peter's writing, in a place of torment, awaiting final judgment in that Luke 16, 24, just an illustration that this is, that, that is true. But when Jesus preached to them through Noah, as Peter calls him, the preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2, 5, they were disobedient and yet not imprisoned. And so, obviously, in this sense, and, and so, and, the, and this disobedience we can support for this is that certainly did mark the people in Noah's day. I mean, this is the emphasis in Genesis 6. It's emphasizing this human sin which provoked God to flood the earth in judgment. And also there, you, you have God's patience. He's waiting for people to repent, to turn to Him and, and, and before judgment and before the flood. And so He's, he's being patient and He's waiting and, and Noah's preaching uh, righteousness and Christ through Him is preaching righteousness. So, so Jesus went, preached to them, not a message of final condemnation through Noah, but, but that their need to come to God for salvation, to go into the ark and be saved. And yet they refused and they're dogged in their disobedience and their unbelief. And so, um, so I, I know you're wondering, okay, well, which one are you convinced of, Justin? Um, well, convinced of maybe a little bit strong. <laughs> I, I agree with Dr. Luther and say, I don't know for certainty just what Peter means. I think there are notable strengths and weaknesses of each of these views and each, neither view is free from difficulty. I'll say that. But after it's all said and done, I do find the support for the second view more compelling. And the primary reason I find greater support for it is how it fits in the context, the wider context of, of what Peter is saying to these first readers. And, and again, though I can see both interpretations being some encouragement to them, but just consider some of the ways as these readers first heard this letter read to them, how they might understand this and how it could be of tremendous encouragement to them and to us. And so, some parallels. One, Noah was in a small, small rejected minority. Eight persons in all the world went into that ark and believed him, believed God. They're surrounded by all these hostile unbelievers. And this is Peter's whole point in writing the letter to these to encourage this small minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers. That's one parallel. Second, 
Noah was righteous in the midst of a disobedient world. And this has been one of Peter's main thrusts in in writing to them. He's he's exhorting his readers to be be righteous, to do good in a similarly difficult situation. We've seen this throughout the letter. Third, Noah spoke boldly to the unbelievers around him, warning of judgment to come and preaching um, and pleading with them to turn to the Lord. And this is again what Peter is calling his readers to do. Not to fear, but to be bold in witness, even if suffering, if, if, if suffering is necessary to point others to the Lord. And in fact, it's in those times of suffering that the, you're going to have opportunities to tell of the hope that's in you. Fourth, Noah's message was thought to be ridiculous by those that he preached to. And it was rejected. I mean, rain? Are you kidding? What in the world's rain? And, and judgment, I mean, it looks like, I don't know about you, Jonah, or Noah, but everything kind of seems to be going on as it's always been. And so they, 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 they scorned him, they rejected his message. Similarly, these original readers were proclaiming a message that sounded ridiculous to the world around them, and it was rejected by them. One commentator said, To the Jewish ears, the idea of a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. To Gentiles, the claim that the salvation of the world had come through a crucified Jewish criminal was an absurdity. To both Jew and Gentile, the suggestion that death, particularly death on a cross, could bring eternal life was blasphemous idiocy. Had the early church had a professional director of communications, he would have said categorically, we don't do the cross. Stay on message and focus on his wonderful ethical teaching. And so, the, the, there's <coughs> similarity in, in, in the encouragement that it would be for Peter's readers to th- reflect on Noah's story. And then also, Christ, <coughs> though in an unseen spiritual way, was preaching through Noah to unbelievers around him. Also, Christ is working in an unspir- unseen spiritual way in our lives as well. And He's still actively preaching through us as we bear witness to unbelievers around us. And so to, to Peter's readers, to us, Christ was preaching thousands of years before now. And He will be with us to the end of the age, He tells us in Matthew 28, as we are called to go out and make disciples. He is with us. and will never leave us. He is active all around the world, in all places, with, through, through His people. Even in remote, dangerous places where believers are very few in number, Christ is still preaching through them. I was just thinking of our Bosnian brothers and sisters. That this, this small church in Bosnia, few believers in that nation, and so small in number, but the, the encouragement, Christ is preaching through you as you bear witness to Him. And then one final comparison, we're going to move on. Noah Noah was rescued with a few others in the ark, and we in Christ also are safe and will share in Jesus' triumph. And that moves us to the next thing. Now, I know, I wish, I, so we, we, we got through that. I wish we could say, all right, we're out of the weeds now, and it's smooth sailing to verse 22. That is not the case. <laughs> And so we, we immediately face another big interpretive challenge in this passage. One that may have caused some theological heartburn just at reading it earlier, for some of you, depending on your church background. 
And so verse 19, again, Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits, the spirits who were in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And he proclaimed to them while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then he says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. <coughs> not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now remember, why is this here? It's for our comprehension, it's for our comfort and help. So the floodwaters that brought judgment on the world in Noah's day, they remind Peter of Christian baptism. And so he says, now baptism, which corresponds to this. Now I think, and others uh, allude to this well, I think that most likely in, in, when there were baptisms that were performed and the gospel was proclaimed in, in the early church, it may very well be that the, the, an illustration from Scripture that was used during those times of, of, of gather, those gatherings was was going back to Noah and the flood. And so, as we think, what in, why, are, why are you using this, Peter? Peter's readers like, oh, we, we hear that all the time. So I don't think this was, this, they, they had that same kind of angst about it. But, but to us, we say, what is he saying? And more importantly, what is he not saying here? Um, we just say a couple things. One, as we compare Scripture to Scripture, and as we work from the assumption that Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will not contradict himself. Um, we can safely say that Peter is not saying that mere participation in the outward form of baptism saves people in the way that we think of salvation, of justification. Now, Peter has written a lot about salvation in this letter. If you've been with us the whole time, you know this. And he has made no reference to baptism. He's never combined those two things before. And so when, so, but when you read this at face value, you can look like that. And people say, well, look, it says it right here. Baptism saves people. And, and, and just like it saved, water saved them. I remember working, we, we were in, uh, we went to, my wife and I went to college in Abilene, Texas, at Hardin-Simmons University, a Baptist college in Abilene, Texas. And the larger university in Abilene, Texas is Abilene Christian University, which is a Church of Christ University. And, and if you know anything about Church of Christ, or maybe this is your background, they do hold to a view of baptismal regeneration and that you're saved by, by baptism. And you can't be saved without baptism. And so we ended up having several students coming from ACU, uh, coming to our church. I was working with college students in the church. And so as I'm developing relationships with them, some were very dogged and they were dogmatic and they were dug in on this issue and wanted to, you know, argue about it. Others had just, this is all they'd ever heard and it was kind of assumed and they were interested and they were open and, and began to kind of change their understanding of these things. But it, it, it did uh, cause some, a rift. And so much so that the, the dean of students at Abilene Christian, Christian University called me and wanted to meet with me at his office. And I thought, this is wonderful. I've been going and meeting with students on campus. I thought, well, maybe there's a little gesture and kind of a, uh, a hand up and, and a connection here that's being made. And he came, and, he, and when I met with him, he said, you're not allowed to come on our campus anymore. And so, okay, all right, well... Uh, um, so, but, but it was a big deal to them. Now, I only say that. It's not just kind of like, oh, you know, just do what you want. 
as we're saying, there's different views. That's not what they're saying and what they believe. But this we can state clearly, emphatically. Peter is not teaching that. We're regenerated, born again by virtue of our baptism. Not salvation by the outward act of baptism. That wouldn't contradict everything Peter's already said. That would be in contradiction, I, I believe, with the entirety of the New Testament. And I know there are passages, Acts 2.38, you've got to deal with. We don't have time to go to those places, but we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. The main things are the plain things. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And baptism is a work. And so, and, and notice, I, I think it's clear from this passage that that cannot be what it's saying. Because Peter avoids any misunderstanding and immediately clarifies what he means. And he gives these qualifying statements. Uh, when after, right after saying baptism now saves you. And, and these qualifying statements, they rule out the possibility of that outward act having some saving value inherent in it. He says, verse 21, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not the water itself that transforms. There's no magic water that has the power to cleanse you and to to save you. The water that pours into our baptistry back here, it just comes from the Fayette County water system. We have no you know, spiritual filter that we run it through and say, okay, so that when you're baptized, now you're saved. I'm not saying people believe that exactly, but I'm saying it's not the physical washing of baptism. It's what baptism signifies and symbolizes. That's what saves. It's an outward sign of an inward reality, we often say. The inward reality is the new birth. It's regeneration. And that's what baptism is portraying. And so the, and look at the, the point of the text. Take it in its context. Sinners like you and me, we don't just need water to be saved. We need an ark. And this is as he's using this in the context of Noah and the flood. We, we need a place to hide from the waters of judgment. And, and God has provided that ark. And this is what he, when he says it corresponds to this, it's not the water itself, I think it's the, it's the entire picture. The, the original ark that Noah built pointed to the ark that God would provide in the crucified and risen Christ. And so on the cross, Jesus experienced the divine floodwaters of, of, of judgment against sin in our place. So that all who would trust in Him and all who would take refuge in Him could be spared of that judgment. And then, and so this is what Peter's saying, and then he explains further. It's not this, but it's this. It's not, it's not the removal of dirt from your body that saves, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now again, that's, I know that language, it's not, it's not how we speak, but this appeal, is, is, it, it means answer. In that day, as in ours, people, before someone is baptized, they make this this profession of faith, statement of faith. They're, they're, they believe. They profess that. And, and it's what this faith, it was this faith that was the means of salvation from a guilty conscience. This appeal to God. And then to make crystal clear what truly saves sinners, Peter says this, that salvation is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not the act of man. It's not the will of man. It's not the, the uh, physical performing of an act. Salvation comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, I don't, I don't think that could be plainer in the passage. 
Robert Mount said of this in this context of baptism. It's not the act, but the event, the death and resurrection, that lies behind what the act symbolizes. That is the only meritorious basis for salvation. The physical act of baptism has no saving power. It is based not upon what man does, but upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, friend, unbelieving friend, you you may be here today and and this is kind of all foreign to you. Now, you're not alone if this passage is foreign to you because there's a lot of us that this is sort of foreign and we're heads are spinning and I'm lost some people already. I realize that. But listen, listen to me now. As, as, Peter, <coughs> excuse me, as Peter lays out the, the nature of Christ's victory and, and his authority here, notice the possibility of the saving benefits of Christ these can be yours personally. This is there. This is in the passage. You can actually enter into the benefits of the victory that Jesus Christ has won. The verse 20 to 21 there, there are eight people who were brought safely through the flood on the ark. God was patient, waiting for people to come in to His safety. And yet only eight went in. And the New Testament makes it very clear. God is patient today. He's not, as Romans says, not wishing that any, for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's waiting for unbelieving husbands of believing wives. This is in the context of this letter. He's waiting for children of moms and dads who are praying for their kids' salvation. He's waiting for friends and neighbors and classmates and co-workers and relatives to come into the ark of the crucified and risen Christ and know these saving benefits personally. And He's waiting for you if you've not done that. Called out to Him saying, I need a Savior. I need a refuge. I need Christ. You can do that now. Romans 10, 9 and following there. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has been God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13. Also though, believer, believing brother or sister in Christ, in emphasizing that we're, not, that we're saved by faith in Christ, not baptism, I don't want you to hear me minimizing baptism. In, the, in this original context, it, were, it was their baptisms that really began their sufferings for the gospel's sake. Most agree with this, that in, in, in church history, it was when they went public in, in, in baptism, not, in, not behind the walls of a church, it was generally at a river, it was in a public place. They were baptized, and, the, and they had this, this, their new life in Christ is now this, is publicly professed. And this is where the persecution really began. But I, I would just say, if you are a believer and you've not yet been baptized, this is an important thing for you to pursue and to do. And I would encourage you to not, not wait longer. But for all believers, we were helped, we're encouraged by remembering what the saving work of baptism, the, what, what baptism represents, the saving work that baptism represents and symbolizes. We have been buried with Christ in that spiritual baptism. Uh, we have been buried with Christ and we have risen with Him. We have been brought from death to life. Judgment is now past for us. There is no condemnation any longer. 
We, any, any suffering that we experience today as believers, it cannot be the condemnation of God because it was all poured out on Jesus Christ. And we are in Him. We are safe in Christ, who is our ark by faith. And nothing can take that away, Romans 8 makes very clear. And, so, and, we, and we know all of this because of the victory Christ has won through His salvation-providing resurrection. It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Peter says. Alright, that's a, a huge uh, chunk of truth that's very challenging that we've just walked through. We don't do this every week, I promise. If you're a guest, this is not normal. But, but I, I hope that there's some clarity, there's some comprehension, and there's some comfort. We'll tie it up now. Verse 22, last thing we'll say quickly, Christ's victory in His heaven-ascending reign. Jesus Christ, in verse 21, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. So Jesus goes back into heaven and the, the banner, the headline of the newspapers, as it were, is what? It's mission accomplished. Jesus is victorious. He is seated on the victor's stand. I know there's a lot of you and a lot of us that are excited about the World Cup Finals today. And if you are, don't care, please don't check the scores and say anything to the rest of us because we're all recording it. And, but, there, but somebody is going to be champion today. France or Croatia of all of the national soccer teams in the world. And so but we're saying Christ is the one. He successfully completed His mission dying and rising again for sinners, and He is now placed on the podium, the victor stand for all to see. He alone now has authority over all authorities, powers, humans, every being in the universe. We sang this earlier. The head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. Christ ascended. And every power has been subjected to Him. We know that word subjected. If you've been with us through this study back in chapters 2 and 3, where he talked about all of us are subject to, to civil authorities and, and the servants are to be subject to their masters and wives subject to their husbands. And here, it, the, the word subject is to line up under rank. Line up and rank under someone. And here, all authorities, all powers have been subjected to Jesus Christ and His supreme power. They've, they've been lined up under His rank by virtue of His death, resurrection, and ascension. If you want to good verse to kind of capture this more complicated passage and you just want to put something on your mirror this week and try to remind yourselves of these truths and let them kind of seep into your soul. Ephesians one twenty one is a good one. Paul there speaks of, of the, the great power of God that he exerted when, when, he rose, when, when Jesus rose from the dead. And then he says in verse 20, seating him at the right hand in the heavenly realm, same language we're talking about here. And he says, verse 21, far above all rule and authority. I've read that many times. It's just weak. Not a little bit above it, not just kind of edging out over the top. No, far above all rule and authority. That's an absolute statement. Not only in this age, but in the age to come. There is no more emphatic way to make that declaration. Christ is triumphant. There is no higher authority. Just a couple implications of this and then we're done. One is this. No harassing, oppressing, deceiving, accusing, human authority or even demonic power is free to do as He pleases to you. 
because all authority has been subjected to Christ. All people, all demons, all Satan himself, they're subject to Jesus Christ. Therefore, we don't have to be afraid. Christ has nullified the, the one thing that these powers and authorities could use to destroy us. Sin and death. It's as if the human, the demonic world, they, they had all these weapons that they could use to harm us and harass us, but they had one great tank of poison that could destroy us. Sin and death. And when Christ went to the cross, He drank the entire tank. So there's nothing left. to, to no, no poison any longer that exists that could harm us as Christians. They can still rage against us as they rage against Christ and threaten us and malign us and slander us and even and, and, and beat us and imprison us and even kill us. But they, but they have no authority to destroy us because Christ has paid it all. He's dealt with sin and death. And so for us to live as Christ, to die is gain. And so He... Christ suffered and He died, but He won and we win too by virtue of our union with Him. Second implication is when we read 1 Peter 3.22, this ought to put in balance for us all of our interest in and potential preoccupation with the political schemings of men. Not because they're unimportant, not at all, but the Supreme Court of the United States, as important as an issue that is right now in this nation, that Supreme Court is not supreme. Jesus Christ is... All, all authorities have been subjected under Him. And so we care. But we remember that Christ is the one who sets up authorities and brings them down. He establishes kings and removes, removes their influence. He holds the breaths of, breaths of presidents and congressmen and, and justices and princes and dictators in his hand. And again, you can see how important this was for Peter's first readers of this letter. Those Roman authorities, they had, they had the power to kill people at a whim. And yet Peter encourages them, no, beleaguered Christians, no matter what's about to break loose on you, remember there is only one who is sovereign, and it is Christ. So try to imagine, you're, you're numbered among the few you are among the oppressed, fearful, original readers of this, the uh, first readers of this letter. And as the assembly gathers and you get this letter from the Apostle Peter, you hear these words, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went to proclaim to the spirits. In prison now, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. What would that speak? How would that speak to your heart? 
persecuted, wants to lift their gaze from their circumstances, from their suffering, not, not to minimize them or downplay them, but to behold the Lord of glory who has died, risen, and ascended, and sits at the right hand of God, and has all authority subjected underneath Him. And what sweet, soul-strengthening, perspective-giving, hope-offering encouragement for those exiles to hear, for us to hear. If you're a student, a high school student, preparing to go back on campus, and, and there you may be marginalized or even maligned for your faith in Jesus Christ, this can make a definitive difference in your life this year. If you will lay hold of this reality. This perspective can, give, can, can impart courage to your soul as you anticipate this. If you, if you aren't promoted at work, or, or maybe you've even been let go because, because of your identification with the Gospel, or, at, or your adherence to the implications of the Gospel, this can make all the difference. If, you're, if this summer you, you still are anticipating this trip to go see extended family, and you, you, you know, you're, you're aware of the suspicion and the hostility that people have in your family towards you because of the transforming work of the Gospel in your life. This can be of great help to you. Whenever we find ourselves in a context where the world reacts to or opposes us for taking a stand for the Gospel, this perspective can have a transforming effect in our souls. Because what it says is, is what appears is not really what is. It appears chaotic. It appears the righteous are losing. It appears Christ, uh, the gospel is not powerful. But what is, is that Christ died once for sins. He rose from the dead, conquered sin and death. He reigns in heaven and has all authority subjected underneath Him. He reigns. He is victorious. And for that, I hope that we leave here not in a state of confusion and and, and lacking clarity, but I hope that we leave here going out, singing, declaring, shouting even, what we sang earlier, earlier, Hallelujah, what a Savior.